This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I hope you're well, wherever you are. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. My guest today is Andrew Lipstein, author of a new novel called The Vegan. Yeah, becoming a vegetarian for me was a very weird experience that I think had a lot to do with this book, and I think writing it was a way to explore that. I think if you asked me that morning that I decided to become a vegetarian, would I ever become a vegetarian? I would think it was a ridiculous idea, as would everyone who knew me, and I was eating dumplings with who would become my wife, and I just looked at the meat and just said, I don't want ever, I'm getting goosebumps actually, I don't ever want to eat meat again, and... Um, and I haven't. Okay, that was Andrew Lipstein. His new novel is called The Vegan, available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. And I should emphasize, this is a novel, despite the clip that you just heard. It's not a book about veganism in a polemical way. It's very much a fiction. It is a novel about guilt and greed and morality and what we as human beings will do the lengths to which we will go to prove to ourselves and to others that we are quote unquote good the vegan is narrated by a guy named herschel kane a new yorker he lives in brooklyn and cobble hill he works in finance and herschel is a hedge fund guy, founder of a company that I guess would be categorized as fintech, financial technology, slash hedge fund. I don't know this world that well, but it's a company that has created a very sophisticated algorithm that can essentially game the stock market and will, at least in theory, yield enormous profits for investors and for company employees. But then... In the midst of all this, something happens to Herschel Kane socially, at a dinner party. He does something. Something happens. <laughs> it's not good. And then something or a variety of somethings happen to him spiritually, I guess you could say. It, you know, it is a very wonderfully plotted and very wonderfully intelligent book. I'm not going to spell it all out, but suffice it to say, Herschel Kane's life unravels and his conception of who he is and what he's all about shifts 
dramatically over the course of the book. And also, I should say, often to darkly comedic effect. I'm just very impressed with this novel, one of the smartest books I've read this year. Herschel Cain is an incredibly memorable voice on the page, a very memorable narrator. And this is definitely a book that has a lot to say about the world that we live in now and the way that we, in America in particular, are living in it. So very excited to have had the chance to talk with Andrew Lipstein. That conversation is coming up in just a couple of minutes. Before we get started, I do want to remind you about my email newsletter. It goes out once a week. It's free. It is pretty straightforward. I will let you know about the latest episodes of the show, and I also share some links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, you can sign up for my newsletter at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. As well, you can become an Other People Patreon supporter over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. It's easy. It's a sliding scale. You can get merchandise, t-shirt, tote bag, coffee mug, book club subscription, all those sorts of things over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So my guest, once again, is Andrew Lipstein. His new novel is called The Vegan, available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Andrew Lipstein is also the author of a novel called Last Resort, which was published just last year, also by FSG. He is a very gifted writer, and this is, in my estimation, a very promising beginning to a literary career. So I'm very pleased to have had the chance to talk with him at this juncture, and I'm excited to share the conversation with all of you right now. This right here is Andrew Lipstein, and his new novel, One More Time, is called The Vegan. When I'm writing or about to write, I really stop reading fiction altogether because I don't want to be influenced. But I did, in this book, spend a few months interviewing people in that world. I interviewed about seven or eight quant hedge fund guys. And they're all guys, actually. Okay, so stop. What is a, yeah. quant, hedge, what is a quant hedge fund? Because this yeah. book, for people who are listening who have not had a chance to read, is incredibly knowledgeable or feels incredibly knowledgeable about the world of finance. It feels very authentic and lived in. feels like something you might have had like work experience in. Um, but you're interviewing these guys. Let's just try to wrap our brains around what a quant yeah. hedge fund is. Yeah, so this, I mean, many people call it a science, and usually quant hedge funds will be full of scientists, but well, the science or the discipline started maybe in the 50s or 60s, and basically a quant hedge fund is a hedge fund that uses algorithms or something automated to trade. So a normal hedge fund, I don't know if you know this, is called a hedge fund because you are finding some abnormality or disequilibrium with a stock or set of stocks, and you are then trading that stock, but hedging that trade with stocks that are like it, but don't have that abnormality or disequilibrium themselves. So you're sort of market neutral. That's what a hedge fund is, and a quant hedge fund is doing exactly that, but basically automating that entire process. And as you can imagine, that's only become a more popular model in the past 10 years or so, but I think Renaissance Technologies was basically the first big quant hedge fund and they launched 
many decades ago. Yeah, that is what the world of this novel involves. You know, the the protagonist uh, of your book, who is a great character and a great voice on the page. He's a first-person narrator, at least for most of the book. There's one interlude where he sort of splits off into third, but his name is Herschel Cain. And I'm wondering about his origins for you, like that voice on the page. Like, where do you, where do you trace it to? Like, how did you get to where we ultimately get in this book? Yeah, I mean, on the page in the most immediate sense, I definitely see writing as a kind of acting. So I'm, I'm and especially in first person, I'm just putting myself in this character to actually create the character, it definitely goes back to those conversations I had, especially a couple of them were extremely influential. Part of those conversations were to obviously get the lingo and to understand the world that I was talking about. A, a bigger part was getting the voice, getting what sort of moral questions are at play and what moral questions aren't at play and how and what's actually driving these types of people. I had one incredible conversation that I did not want to end with a CEO of a quant fund. And like Herschel Kane in the book, he isn't in the actual weeds. If you're a CEO of a company like this, you probably don't understand the actual science behind it, but you're more of a business person. And he talked to me about a epiphany he had about the effect emotionally he was having on his workplace. And it was an amazing conversation. I didn't expect to go that direction, but the very idea that somebody like that could have an epiphany in midlife at the top of their game, basically to challenge assumptions about themselves and the qualities that helped them get to the top was really profound for me. And, and, and I almost wanted to start writing then, but I wasn't completely done with my research. But you know, through that conversation, I also gained a lot of empathy for this person and people like that in general, and which I think was very important because a character like Herschel Cain, you hear the, the narrator is a hedge fund guy. And I think up front, a reader is expecting to find ways that they don't like him. But that wouldn't, I think, have made an acceptable book. So yeah, those conversations, I think, were a lot about empathy, but also to put myself in those people's shoes so I could perform the second part of the act, which I consider a form of acting. Okay, that's interesting. And first of all, I want to ask if the research process that you went through for The Vegan is something that is common for you? Like, did you do that for your first novel, Last Resort? Are you doing it for subsequent books? Like, is this part of your process to talk to people, to try to get characters built who feel dimensional and sympathetic and unexpected? The more I think about it, it is. For Last Resort, my research was basically writing five failed novels and obsessing over how I could possibly get published which is, you know, the tenor of that book. For my third book, which is coming out in a year and a half, it takes place in Denmark, where my w wife is from, in a friend group of journalists, which are our friends over there. And I basically had a group chat of a select few friends in Denmark who I could ask questions to night and day. So I would say the first and third books had more of like a accidental research, whereas for The Vegan, I definitely set out some time to myself to actually research. Yeah, and I feel like Herschel Cain must have been a fun character to write. Like there's something, I mean, you know, I, how do we set this up for the listener? Like this is a guy who's running a quant hedge fund. He has, with his colleagues, come up with a proprietary algorithmic machine that uh, is supposedly going to 
beat the market handily and make a lot of people very, very wealthy. That's the gist. Right. Yeah. I mean, he, he runs afoul from many of our good liberal values. And I think because he's allowed to go against them, I found it very freeing to inhabit a character who is so nakedly ambitious and especially about money, which is something, you know, in the book world, we're supposed to desire in so far as it can help us accomplish our life goals, but never just want money, you know, and especially as writers, we're supposed to be so gracious, you know, and so like almost understated. And I love these characters who really are naked in their flaws and have flaws that have two sides to them. It's something I love about ambition in general is we love people who are ambitious for what they create. But when you get close enough to them, you see the real ugly side of it. And I kind of couldn't wait to to play it out with him and his... Um, have him start to question his ambitions and also see how they see how they kind of form his character. Yeah, I mean, this book is, I mean, it's called The Vegan, so it's very much about the human animal. It's about Herschel, and as he goes into this mode where he's kind of having a life crisis and a reevaluation of self and even like a breakdown, he's very much tuned into himself as an animal and himself as an animal in relationship to other animals on this planet. He develops a heightened sensitivity to the animal kingdom and changes his diet as a result. And there's a passage in the book related to ambition and greed that I find memorable where he's talking about like pigs at the trough and how we never say they're greedy. You know, like I think I have that right. Like it, yeah, yeah. I was thinking about you writing that passage and how much fun you seem to be having on the page. And it's something that I've talked about a lot on this show, my sort of, troubled relationship with ambition it makes me very uncomfortable when people start talking about how ambitious they are and it makes me I mean I get it I think if you're ambitious for good things then that's a you know that's a proper use of energy but just like you say you know it's when somebody's really really driven and you see it up close it's kind of unsettling (laughs) yeah i think ambition and not to get too woo woo here but i think most things can be divided into their love side and their fear side and especially if we want to talk about writing like someone could be ambitious because they love writing and they'll do anything to open the door for them to write the books they want to write and they will go at it with such ferocity that comes from the love and there's the fear side, which is, you know, competitiveness with other writers, needing to win certain things, needing to achieve certain sales numbers, which is very ugly to us. And when writers talk publicly, I think they tend to focus more on the love side. But the truth is that both exist. And I think a successful writer almost needs both. I want to ask you a little bit more about the interview stage of this, the research stage of this, and in particular, the conversation that you had that was so moving for you with this CEO guy who had had kind of a life epiphany related to how he was affecting his workplace. And I I want you to talk a bit about going from that process to the page in a work of fiction. Like, obviously, you're getting a lot of ideas from these conversations. You're getting basic information that you need to know about the mechanics of hedge funds and how they work in this world of finance. But what does it look like? Are you transcribing the interviews? Are you 
going through with a highlighter? Like, how are you building Herschel Kane out of out of those conversations? Herschel Kane, I would say, there's the link between the interviews and him is fuzzier. The interviews are more me, kind of sculpting a character in your head in the way that you can't really put into words, or like you get a a better idea of like whether someone you know, wants mustard or mayo on a sandwich, for example. Like, you just get those intangibles that you couldn't put into words why you think that way. But as far as the practicalities, like, I took copious notes during the calls themselves and highlighted certain things I thought were interesting, but I'm a copious note-taker, and mostly all of it ends up, like, being read once by me, like, because I feel like I have to, and then kind of discarded. I feel like the act of writing it down sort of helps me take what I need from it at, at that moment itself. I feel like the good stuff sticks. Yeah, the good stuff always sticks. And the stuff that you think is interesting that doesn't stick that you read later where you're like, has like five exclamation points after it, you're like, why did I think this would be useful? This is, right. this is, this is dead on arrival. Right, right, right. So you feel like you're pretty prolific. Like you've written, you published Last Resort, what, last year or the year before? Yeah, 2022, so a year and a half ago. Okay, and now you've got another one coming out and then there's another one coming out. So you've been busy. I have, yeah. I, I wrote The Vegan in a very short period of time. I think I started around Thanksgiving and finished around Valentine's Day. And I generally write pretty fast once I get started on a project. Yeah, so so I'll, I sold, I think, three books in three years. Wow. And this was after writing, like you said earlier, five failed novels prior to publishing Last Resort. That's right. The first of those, I think I finished maybe 10 years ago. Okay, so you're yeah. determined. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you were talking earlier about luck. I think if I, and I, I do think I got lucky to be published at all. If I hadn't got published, I think I would still have been writing. I think I would be 70 and would have written 25 failed novels, possibly. Yeah, I think that's the case. I think for people who do this, it's sort of a hopeless situation. Like you, <laughs> if, you've got, if you've got the bug, you can't really turn it off. For sure. Even if you try, you come back. And do you know... I mean, you mentioned having some good luck, you know, it takes a little bit of that, but you've also been industrious and you've been persistent and you haven't let failure stop you. Do you have a sense of what changed for you in terms of your understanding of how you function as a writer and how things should look on the page between the failed novels and the one that broke through? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, what were the yeah. lessons learned and internalized that helped you get to the point where you were publishable? Yeah, I think there are two things. One is soft and one is a bit more practical. But the soft is that I was in, in the book Last Resort that got published. I think I was just a lot more honest. I, I wasn't trying to be a writer. I was taking what I was curious about and what I felt strongly about and just exploring that in a more honest way than, you know, this idea is interesting. Let me explore this more like abstract ways of, of building what you're going to write about. And then more practically, and this is something that one of my earlier agents tried to get through to my thick head but couldn't, is just arc and stakes. What are the stakes of the novel and what is, what is the arc? And I, I think about arc so much now. When writing, when building a scene, you know, where are we coming from? Where are we going? How does that play into um, the tensions of what came before and what's going to come after. It's something I think about constantly. So wait, let me, let me stop you because yeah. let's just, let's, let's use this paradigm to sort of 
assess the vegan. When you talk mm -hmm. about arc and steaks, you talk about writing this very quickly. The idea, what was the original seed of the idea, first of all? Because you, you launched into this research process. You had to have something that you were working from. You knew you wanted to write about the world of finance? Before that, I had this idea of like grading two tones against each other, something lighter and more humorous, and then quickly shifting into tragedy and what that looks like and feels like. And in the book, there's a dinner party that's, you know, has a lot of levity and sort of feels like a comedy of manners. And then it quickly becomes tragic. That was, I had that idea before the finance stuff. And then I was like, maybe I'll set this in the world of quant finance. And as soon as I had that thought, I just imagine interviewing people. And I have such an interest in that world that I was just like, it has to be the case. I basically want to write this book as an excuse to talk to these people. But I probably had a lot less planned out from the beginning besides the act that precipitates what follows, which is that Herschel Cain serves a drink with Zequel in it to a boring dinner guest. That, that I had, that comes pretty early on. And then what came after, I basically plotted out while I was writing it. Yeah, that leads to tragedy, we should say. I mean, without... Mm -hmm wanting to spoil too much, but that's like a very, it was a, I love this plot twist, you know, and it, it, it really caught me by surprise and uh, raised the stakes, as you say, and trying to think of like, I was thinking like kind of Coen Brothers, it has like kind of Coen Brothers vibe, like very macabre comedy, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, for things to go that sideways at this dinner party where this couple is trying to impress a couple with the last name Guggenheim, <laughs> right. you know, very funny, but also very dark. And so you had a sense, like those were the, the initial stakes and that was the initial arc that you were working from. And from there you fleshed it out, like to use a, a term like somewhat related to veganism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, there's like that really wrote writer advice, like a character should always want something, even if it's a glass of water. Maybe that was Vonnegut or something like that. It was, yeah. Yeah. And um, thinking about what Herschel Cain and the characters surrounding him want each scene and what they don't want was something I considered before writing every part of it. Okay. Yeah. And you also have, you know, this, the, like the other like plot line is that Herschel is trying to raise funds for this new fund mm -hmm. and this algorithmically driven fund that he's building. He's kind of a CEO of his own startup. And so he's dealing with people who are difficult. When you start to ask somebody for $250 million or whatever mm -hmm. it is, right. you're going to wind up dealing with some pretty hard knuckled human beings, I would imagine. <laughs> right. There's so much artifice, I think, especially in a lot of the technology we build, where you have to imagine you've already succeeded to get the necessary resources to succeed in the first place. And that's sort of exactly the predicament he's in, which I think is yeah. really, is really fun. Just to have to, you sort of have to lie to make the truth true, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've worked in startups and there's definitely that kind of uh, like that unreal feeling. And I remember watching one CEO in particular, operate and you know frankly he was kind of a mess i think as a person but and and i don't necessarily think this was a virtue but i was impressed with it to a certain degree it's just the level at which he was able to consistently believe his own bullshit mm -hmm. and how he was able to talk down 
that's the way I guess I would put it, to, to literally everybody in mm-hmm. his entire life without ever <laughs> flinching. You know what I'm saying? Like he just, he just was all in on this kind of like belief. I think he just made peace with the fact that that was how he felt like he had to be in order to keep the hustle going and anything, anything south of that. And he was going to lose it, you know? And of course he ended up burning through, I don't know how many millions of dollars and the company tanked, but you know, that's the way it usually goes, right? Startups usually fail. (laughs) Right. I mean, could be a weapon too. It sounds like he had some deep insecurities, but I have worked for some successful founders who try to build up people around them. But at the same time, you sort of are in awe of maybe some small sacrifices of integrity, or maybe I should say consistent sacrifices of integrity to convince the people they need to convince to give them the things that they need. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge part of it. And I think in this book, there's a great villain. Uh, his name's Ian. I mean, I guess Colin is the the guy, the real money guy, but he's got his guy, which also feels very true to life. His the real yeah. money, the the real money guys never actually no. get their hands dirty. They no, always they have. Never get their hands dirty. No, yeah, I uh, I wrote about this in my book. It was based on real life experience of a experience I had of being in the room with an incredibly wealthy human being, and the thing that I took away from it was that he had all these people around him. He had like a group of dudes around him who essentially did all of his bidding and then also kind of quietly fought with each other (laughs) for his favor. It was very, very like uh, illuminating. And I guess that's the way it is when you're that rich, you're not going to do anything you don't want to do anything like uncomfortable. You can just outsource. (laughs) That's true. Um, To your your team. Yeah, that's right. So let's talk about what you, have to bring to this book professionally you said you've worked for founders so like day job stuff is that are you bringing stuff from that set of experiences to this book well what i want to say is that i i finished because i'm being asked this is i finished this book before i started working for my current employer which is Robinhood. so none of that job and i don't i don't consider it a day job i consider it a career i'm very I love my job, honestly. Which yeah, is what? What is what is Robinhood? Yeah, so Robinhood is a um, a brokerage app. Basically, you buy and sell stocks on this app. I'm 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 hedging because I really uh, you really I'm I'm not, I, w- I won't really say anything about Robinhood in yeah. general, um, just for compliance reasons. But I can say I work on the options product of that basically building features for options which is a, a form of derivative for stocks but that all came after i started there in 2022 and i finished the vegan in the spring of 2021 okay and you so you understand you have also like a working knowledge not a, in, in addition to doing all these interviews you also have some knowledge of this stuff that probably exceeds the average writer of literary fiction. Yeah, it's funny. I um, befriended another writer, Mark Prince, who lives two blocks up from me. He he wrote the terrific Latinist that came out in 2022. And uh, he trades options. And I was like, how rare is this to find somebody who knows about options who's also written a novel? But yeah, I, uh, since joining Robinhood, I've become very in the weeds with derivative uh, products. What is an option? Like, is it like a stock option or? Yeah, stock option. So you probably have heard the term stock option related to like private stock options, getting stock options in a startup you join, but this is a publicly tradable. So you you would trade an option on Apple stock, for example. You would trade an option on an existing stock. And it's basically, um, 
I don't want to. <laughs> I, I'm just waiting to get an email from someone at work saying, "Hey, uh, no, uh, yeah, Google it." <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I understand. It's it's a, it's a more complex uh, financial product than stocks, and it you could do more interesting things with it, and it's not for everybody. Yeah. All all That's trading entails risk. Right, of course, yeah, and I just feel like, but I feel like as a just sort of like a a lay person who's sort of coming at this with limited knowledge, it feels like the complexity of these tradable things, whatever they are, you know, mortgage-backed derivatives, options, it feels like, what does it feel like? It feels like you can just sort of invent this stuff, and there are, and this, and your novel speaks to this, where there are people operating in the world of finance who are, it seems like creating products and trying to game the system. And a lot of them get away with it. I mean, at least, I I don't know, it feels that way. And I think Herschel speaks to this. It's like the SEC, I think he's talking about, you know, what they're doing with this algorithm. And he's just like the SEC, the Southern District of New York, you know, people make too much of it essentially they don't catch most of yeah. what people in the world of finance are getting away with like i don't know how true that is but in the world of the novel that's sort of the idea and it felt true to me yeah i mean i i have read like every finance book about finance in the 80s and 90s and the theme throughout that is always people inventing new financial instruments and the government being 15 to 75 years behind them and it's just it's just funny because that's sort of the trope you have in your mind uh, and I'm speaking to the books I've read, not to my um, own work experience. But in the rare case, actually, I forget if it was Den of Thieves or Barbarian, Barbarians at the Gate, you have Rudy Giuliani in his role in the government being like one of the only people who is willing to like really do the dirty work of going after these guys. But it, it's also fun when sort of the contrivance of inventing a financial instrument blows up in your face in the collapse of long-term capital management in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, they basically invented a whole, a whole bunch of interesting financial instruments. But what happens when you're trading something no one else is trading is you have what's called a liquidity issue, where you can't sell this thing that you own if there aren't a lot of other people selling it without crashing the price. And basically, long-term capital management, because of their ability to like generate new financial things, went up in flames like so quickly that it caused a wave across the entire uh, financial industry. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what's interesting to me is the way that these things can have such a crazy domino effect when uh, like one bank fails and there's panic in the markets. And I mean, I don't understand it all, but it, uh, we just went through this to a sort like, a, I guess to a, a manageable extent. We had a big run on banks or it started the, to re- feel the regional like it, bank crisis. Yeah, the regional yeah. bank crisis, so. Yeah. It's an interesting world, and it's interesting to talk to a novelist who has, like, a foot in sort of the literary world and the art world, and also a world a foot in the financial world because that's not common. You have to, I mean, like what Mark Prince, this guy you know two blocks up. Maybe there are New York writers who uh, are more inclined to understand finance because you have proximity to Wall Street or something. But I, I cannot think of another writer I've talked to who's operating in both of these spheres. Well, Hernan Diaz. Trust, which co-won the Pulitzer Prize, takes place, right. you know, more historically. Gary Steingart wrote Lake Success about a hedge fund guy. I'm sort of angry at myself for now I can't really write another finance novel again because I really want to. But I feel like 
you know, I won't ever write about publishing again after my first novel. And after this, I probably won't, unfortunately. Well, you know, who knows? There's no rules. You could do it, right? <laughs> That's true. So um, how do you do it then? If you're working what would, would, I would imagine is a very demanding full-time job and you're publishing like three novels in three years, essentially, like you must be very disciplined. Um, I am, yeah, especially now that I have a kid, I, which wasn't the case for the vegan. In fact, I wanted to finish it before my son was born. But like today's a good example of of the mess I've got myself in, which is that I'm basically jamming in as much editing time as possible before I start work at nine and then working so hard so I can take my son uh, to his eye appointment for two hours, which is like felt like a three week period, those two hours between 10 and 12. And then I'm basically going to work, you know, until the end of the work day and probably fit in another hour of editing after. Wow. And so do you have a schedule? Like, are you one of these people who's up at like 4am to try to make it all happen? Uh, now I do with my third book, not with the vegan. I basically didn't have a kid and wrote whenever night and day I could find time. But now I love having like a schedule. I, I was scared of having a schedule. I thought it would make me feel, I stopped believing this idea of like inspiration of like, uh, you know, courting the muse and being inspired enough and be feeling creative. I love the idea of, of sitting down and forcing yourself to write, albeit having enough ideas from thinking when you're not writing to feel like you don't have to, to feel like it's fun and not like work. But I love this idea of having a schedule now. So what time do you get up? Not that early. I get up probably around 6.30 or 7. Okay. Be because you, of my you, son now. Yeah. But, but you work in the morning before work. Yeah. And, and on weekends and when it's crunch time at night. But to be honest, I'm copy editing right now and I hate it so much that I can't work at night. I just need to stop working. Usually when I'm writing, I, I want to do it all the time, but not with stuff like this. What is it about copy editing that you don't like? It's that it's we're late in the game. Choices I make now are going to be final. Like before that point, it's like, I could always look this sentence later. But now it's like, do I want a comma there? Because that's how it's going to be printed. And also, I've, I, I actually can, can't really read without listening now. In the past few years, I've developed this problem. And I really struggle to hear a sentence and be sure that nothing is wrong with it. And that's what this stage entails, is to make that make sure that there is nothing wrong, as opposed to like trying to generate new ideas and succeeding. It's like totally fear-based, totally like, let me cover my ass here, is copy editing, I think. Like an editor suggests something, and I think I have to think about it a million times before I'm sure that I'm making the right choice. And wait, you say you have to hear in order to... Yeah, so I, I've stopped basically reading. I only listen to audiobooks, and when I'm editing, I use the read aloud feature on Word because I... I've stopped being able to read like uh, when I'm editing, I'm concentrating on the sentence so much that I get caught on every word and I can't read a sentence and just interpret its meaning as you would when you're just reading. So I, I, so I have to read, do the read aloud. Yeah. So I listen to like a weird robotic woman speaking in my ear for hours every day. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. I, uh, I think like I get like, at the late stage, like reading your own stuff aloud and having to hear it that way. But I don't think I've heard anybody use the robot voice. Do you find, I mean, is it a good voice? I don't even know. I've never used that feature. I don't work in Word, but 
Yeah, I mean, she so, gets cadences wrong, obviously. It's a, it's a pretty shitty feature. There's ones you could pay for that are better. But I also feel like... I've heard one writer say they like to put their manuscript in like a stupid font. Because if it works in that font, it will work even better in the font that it's printed in. And if like if the sentence sounds like it's working even with this cadence of a robot, then a reader who knows the cadence like a human might, it will work even more, I think, in their head. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, whatever works. And I feel like there is uh, a real energy and beauty to the voice that you have on the page. Like, this is a very wonderfully written novel. And I, uh, I feel like Herschel is such a brilliant narrator. He's got, he contains multitudes, this guy. And I like how you sort of infuse him, not only with this sort of naked ambition to just make as much money as he possibly can, and there's something sort of like ruthlessly practical about him, uh, but also that he, especially in his breakdown, has this sort of like latent artistic side that comes like bubbling to the surface. And there's a real sophistication to him. It must have been fun to play those contrasts against one another when you were writing it. Yeah, I mean, I think he wants something more uh, like many of us do. And I think that's why writing and art in general for the artist is such a thrilling thing because it's the rare case that we can get something more. But what he finds in animals, this kind of like epiphany or intrusion on his life that makes him see things differently. It's like what we, what we, it's the best part of life have, have that. Like when you first fall in love, when you discover something artistic that you can get into when you gain a passion it's like you're puncturing life and there you have like an escape clause and I think we all want that whether you're someone like Herschel Cain who other people might suspect is has a somewhat boring inner life or like uh, a very like driven aggressive non-artistic side but I love that you describe it as sort of artistic because I think that's I think that's what it is this like desire to have something that doesn't make sense in your normal life yeah well i mean he's got these there are these interludes where he is enjoying for example like a piece of music i'm gonna forget the name of it it was the seasons is that the what four it was called? seasons yeah the four seasons and you know just the way that it's that it's done on the page like his thinking about these things is quite beautiful you know and there's a lot of depth to it it's not just like a superficial enjoyment it's not you know it's, it's almost like he's making sense of it possibly for the first time to himself at a level of depth like there's like a feeling if i'm remembering correctly there's like i think it turns when he's dealing in in this way with the world at the level of art and aesthetic there's almost a feeling of discovery in, in, that I, that you're you're kind of along for the ride for do you know what i'm saying like mm -hmm. he's discovering uh these things anew and maybe finding new like measures of depth within them but I, lo I love that yeah that's a I, I really love how you put that yeah and he's funny i mean and there's also like a lot of really dark humor to it you know so this thing is working at a lot of different levels and at the core of his character arc or somewhere near the core of it is this as we've discussed like new sensitivity to the plight of animals so in the aftermath of this tragedy where he serves this drink to a, a boring dinner guest that is loaded with Zequel, 
and then uh, her name is Birdie, and she has a fall, and you know, hits her head and goes into a very bad state and is hospitalized. He sort of has this breakdown and becomes a vegan. And I, I could not help but wonder about your diet. <laughs> I say this mm -hmm. as somebody who's, I've been a vegetarian my whole adult life. Like what's your, like how did that factor in? This, this notion that he would become a vegan. I think the idea of a hedge funder being a vegan is sort of inherently funny because I, you don't think of them that way. At least I don't. Um, but wh where do you fall on the, the diet spectrum? Yeah, I became a vegetarian about exactly four years ago, which is is funny. I think vegetarianism is like the least morally justifiable position because like I feel like whatever reason you have to be a vegetarian, if you follow that road a little bit further, it will make you vegan, whether it's animal rights or the environment as from one vegetarian to another. I mean, I'm curious what you think, but but yeah, becoming a vegetarian for me was a very weird experience that I think had a lot to do with this book. And I think writing it was a way to explore that what what prompted you that's that's the question i i have no idea i i think if you asked me that morning that i decided to become a vegetarian would i ever become a vegetarian i would think it was a ridiculous idea as would everyone who knew me and i was eating dumplings with who would become my wife and i just looked at the meat and just said i don't want to ever i'm getting goosebumps actually i don't ever want to eat meat again and um, and I haven't. It was that sudden. Yes. Interesting. And was there anything that preceded it? Like, did you have a friend who was influential, who was a vegetarian or who had gotten you thinking about it? Did you read a book about it or see one of these documentaries? Um, no, I, yeah, I actually, I had an interview where I talked about this a little bit before and I actually started crying and I'm kind of don't want to go into it so much because I'm afraid I'll do that again. But, um, that's okay. You can cry on my show. <laughs> no, I, I, I became a vegetarian almost exactly two years. This didn't occur to me, I think until I was actually writing the book, but my father had a brain injury due to choking. Um, and he uh, was he choked on meat, and um, I didn't even that didn't even cross my mind that that was why I had become a vegetarian at the time. And I honestly think the connection between those two things feels a little too obvious or neat. It, it didn't occur to me at the time, but in retrospect, it feels like one of those connections where it's just like it feels too easy that A would imply B. And I don't really know if that had anything to do with it, but this connection of two things that seem disconnected on paper, they feel too connected, I think found its way into the book in a substantial way that wasn't obvious to me until probably until I started editing. That's it, you know, but that's not uncommon, I think, for fiction to do that to us, especially if we're really getting honest and like really rooting around in there. <laughs> like internally and, and going deep or whatever it is, that it will reveal things like this to us, you know, that that maybe should have been more obvious or something. It's weird when you surprise yourself in that way as a fiction writer. Mm -hmm. You go, oh, so this is what I was up to, or this is what yeah. I was feeling. And I think it makes an emotional sense. 
you know, the trauma of having a parent go through something like that. And it's funny because like the morality of eating meat and how do animals feel and all this other stuff is sort of not even part of the equation. I think it's ser- it's literally just like this is what caused it. I mean, I don't know. You you can speak to it with more authority than I can, but I could see it just being that simple. Like it was meat that he choked on. And so I'm not touching that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I do, at the risk of sounding like an asshole, I do think eating meat is wrong. I think it's one of those things that even non, even, even uh, carnivores know intellectually. Like we know a lot of the things that we do is wrong. And when we make progress as a society, it's so obvious, but only in retrospect. But then I think as you're living through it, you know it intellectually, but you forgive yourself. And I think I kind of sensed how awful eating meat was while I was doing it. But as you said, it doesn't take knowing it's wrong or even thinking about it. It takes this like other thing that we don't know a lot about. And those types of things that we feel but don't know a lot about, I think is the stuff of fiction. And as a writer, it's the stuff you're always looking for to put into the work. And when I talked earlier about my failed novels, what I think they were missing was that kind of honesty of putting something I I don't know, but I want to explore into a book instead of coming to a book with like, I have something interesting to show the reader because I don't think anyone is is smart enough to plan consciously a book that will be interesting to an attentive reader. Well, you know, I have... I have a lot of thoughts about what you just said. The first thing I want to say is that I often think as I'm contemplating my own work or as I'm reading somebody else's work, this issue of urgency, that's the way I define it to myself. Uh, But especially somebody who's producing many books over a long career. And if you're along for the ride on more than one of them, you might see fluctuations and you might feel at certain turns that the writer just felt like they had, like maybe they had a book due. and they needed money or something like that. They needed to kind of keep the thing going. And they wrote a book that felt like it didn't have maybe some of the urgency and emotional juice to it that other books did. Now I say that, and there can be writers who have a remarkable consistency from book to book, and they are able to bring that feeling of urgency and like they really had something to say. I think that's the point that I'm trying to get at is all the time that we spend on writing a novel, all the time that we are asking a reader to spend to read a novel, we sort of owe it to ourselves, I think, and we owe it to readers in particular, to come to the work and to, to find that sense of mystery that you just talked about, this thing that you want to explore that you don't fully understand. But also, like, you have to get to a point, ideally, I think, where you really have a sense of urgency about it. There's something that's really bothering you, for lack, lack of a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I agree 100%. And I think that is why, as you said, you read a catalog of a certain writer and their ups and downs. And I think that's just owed to their own, what they're bringing to the book. And then maybe they always have the same level of technical skill or creativity or uh, humor or anything. But you really need something extra for each book, I think. I think at a certain point, you you achieve a level of proficiency or a level of skill as a writer where you're good line by line. You know how to put together a narrative more or less. You can do so in a way that to the average reader, I think, would seem professional. 
So there's not going to be a creative failure at that level. I think when a book does not succeed, the creative failure is in the back end, like the, or the front end work, I should say, where you're not, like as you just said, bringing to the, to the project enough personal risk or personal mm-hmm. stakes. You know what I'm saying? It's like you didn't do the work on the front end. That's where the failure is. It has nothing to do with how it actually is like, like rendered on the page in a superficial way. It's just that, that, that subtext, that level of depth isn't there. Am I making any sense? You are, yeah. I think personal risk is a good way of putting it. I think curiosity might be another. Like, is the writer genuinely curious going into it? And it's funny that you say as a writer goes on in their career, because curiosity is something that some people tend to lose over time. You know, they say younger people are generally more creative. I think they have more curiosity. And as you get success and proficiency, as you said, which is such a brilliant word, because it's like so boring and correct, you know, like proficient, a proficient writer who wants to read a book by a proficient writer who wants to spend six hours of their life uh, ingesting proficiency, you know, nobody, you want to be along there for the ride with a writer who is coming to a project genuinely curious. And I think that that's something that can be chipped away with by all the things that success actually brings and time, of course. Yeah, no, I mean, I think like, this is something I've noticed. I think I notice it in particular musicians, but it carries over. And that's something I try to hang on to is that the musicians who stay most vital into their older age are the musicians who never stop being super curious and who never like kind of close the doors of their mind to new music. They pay a lot of attention. Like I think of a musician like David Bowie, just as like one example. Like this is not a guy who just like got done with the 1970s and was like, this is it, we figured it out. You know, this is somebody who was like super creatively vital all the way through his entire life. And I think people like him, there's a lot of examples, but anybody like that is just, you know, never losing their ability to get excited about ideas and art and is drinking from a lot of different wells. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that might be the way to be. And maybe the writers who don't succeed in the manner that we're talking about, they, I don't know, they become more inert, they get lazy or something, or they get tired of it in a way that winds up being detrimental to their own work. Yeah, I, I think people often say when you're not doing that, you're imitating yourself. You listen to like a new album by a musical artist, and it's just like they're trying to sound like themselves. And so maybe the opposite of that and achieving this thing we're talking about is like willfully discarding the structures that you've already built for yourself as an artist and not having nothing to do with your past projects, which I think is something a good, my editor often talks to me about taking a leap forward. Like he's now, he's now publishing three books of mine. And after every one, he's kind of like wrapping what came before as he can. And like, let's, let's jump from this point. Who, who's your editor? My editor is John Thinkalasi at FSG who, um, you know, is extremely uh, seasoned. He's published Marilyn Robinson, Franzen, um, Eleanor Catton. And he's a great editor on the page, but I really value our conversations as well because I always come go home from them just wanting to change. Yeah, well, no, I think that's actually, that's excellent advice, especially for a writer who's had some success. Like Last Resort was very well received 
and uh you know it's like a, a fine debut you know like got a lot of great critical reception and kind of set you on your way and i think it could be easy i don't know i was just talking to tess gunty about this you know she won the national book award for her debut and i can imagine and i think there's some truth to it that following it up it's like oh my god like mm -hmm. you know you have this great success right out of the gates and then everybody's waiting for whatever you do next and whenever a writer has some success it, it can become kind of a mind fuck to be like okay how do i replicate this what if, what if i come up with something next that nobody likes and everybody's disappointed at my publishing house and you know you can imagine the fear spirals i'm sure you've had some of this anybody would have some of this thinking but you know, just to draw on another recent guest of mine, I was talking with Leila Slimani, and actually as I was prepping for the conversation, I was reading about her in the wake of winning the Goncourt Prize in France. First, like, Moroccan woman ever, too. She was 35, you know, so very young, and won the biggest literary prize in France, essentially. And then she was talking about having to follow it up, and where she came to was that she owed it to herself to write something where there was great risk of failure. Like that was kind of the directive and it correlates with what Jonathan Galassi is telling you. Like we have to leap mm -hmm. from this. Uh, I think it's wise advice. I think like every project should feel like a big swing if you're doing it right. There should be some level of fear and the unknown, you know, these things that we're talking about. And if those things are absent or you're in any kind of defensive crouch, it's probably going to be bad for you, bad for the art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I read Slomani's. The first one was called The Perfect Nanny Here and Something Better in the UK. What was it? It was Chanson Douce. What was it it's in the a, UK? Lullaby. Lullaby. Oh, Lullaby. I yeah, think, yeah. I think, and then her second, I remember reading, because the first one, I think, when I think of what is a perfect novel, sometimes I think of that novel. And maybe not just because the, the title has perfect in it. It's just so taut. The plot is perfect. It's as pure. The idea is so pure, but it bleeds everywhere. I loved it. And when I read her second, I was in awe because I thought, wow, she's not using what she used for the first novel at all, which I think is, uh, you know, a, as impressive as you can get as an artist. Well, I think that, yeah, I mean, it's instructive for anybody out there who's riding the wave of success. <laughs> and is wondering how to handle it. I think it's, it's this, it's like that you have to take a big swing with every project, risk failure. I'm saying this to myself as much as I'm saying it to you or anyone else. And before we get any further, I want to circle back. I do have a question for you. It's maybe a, a question to satisfy like an actual personal conundrum or like, you know, things that I ask myself about vegetarianism. But when you said earlier that you feel like it's wrong to eat meat, like full stop, you feel like there's something morally wrong about eating other animals i'm wondering as a guy who seems to be really kind of well thought out how you make sense of like other animals eating other animals you know obviously we have that that that's how the world turns right animals eat animals we're animals why can't we mm -hmm. eat animals <laughs> like is there something that separates the human being from other species on this planet that makes our consumption of animals morally questionable in ways that say it is not for, uh, you know, what do you call it? An anole, the, the lizard on right. the cover of your book. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you, yeah. how do you square that circle? I think that your, the answer to your question, I think your question is its own answer. And I think the assumption embedded within it is the very answer 
to how I make sense of it, which is that if the standard is that we should be as good as other animals, then that violates basically every other idea about what makes culture and society good. Everything that we hold ourselves accountable with, equality, progressivism, freedom, doesn't exist on, an, on a purely animal level. And I think, you know, I think a lot of my views align with more of an anti-humanism perspective. But if we are trying to think about what makes us good, I think that is the ultimate human question and not an animal question. And if all we're doing is saying, are we as good as uh, the species we came from, then that's just not on the par or standards that we're used to holding ourselves to. So what about anti-humanism? That's interesting, because I think a lot of writers think of themselves as humanists mm -hmm. without even maybe fully understanding what that all entails. But I read a book years ago. It was recommended to was me by Straw a friend. Was it Straw Dogs? Yes. Yes. Yeah, by John Gray. There you yes. go. That book Whenever you hear the up. word anti-humanist, anti it's someone's about to say John Gray. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he, he, yeah. He's, that book's amazing. And I, and I read it, I think, when I was 20 or 21 or so, and it... it set me on a certain path for sure yeah i mean it yeah. could I mean it's so well really like you're just like oh because i think i went into it like yeah i'm a humanist and like yeah i've i've read so and so and you know that book just dismantles it and it sort of knocks human beings down a peg so it's interesting to have like you have this combo you have this sort of like john gray straw dogs like strain to you but you're also like kind of looking to humanity's best qualities as you formulate your approach to food Right. It's well, you said you said we're talking about what is right, and I think that question is a human question. To even ask if something's right or wrong is a human question. I think, as far mm -hmm. as are humans animals or not, you know, Gray would say we are animals. I think, as far as my general worldview goes, I would say I align with him. Yeah, straw dogs, man. I got to reread that. It's been a minute since I read it, but it definitely. I remember like feeling like I had the wind knocked out of me. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> it's terrific. a it's a short book too, right? I yeah. don't remember it being super long, but you can like read it in almost a sitting, and it's just uh, you know made me rethink things. So I'm curious to know about where you're from, like uh, like how you were raised, etc. Like, are you an East Coast guy, like from, born and raised? Yeah, I grew up in New in the suburbs of New Jersey. My parents still live at uh, the house I grew up in. Okay. And yeah. may I ask, I, mean, I don't want you to have to get too deep into the weeds in it, but your dad is doing okay after this accident? I mean, is he... Um, he, he's, uh, he, he has a lot of um, disabilities. He's uh, fundamentally paralyzed and blind. Oh, wow. Yeah. From choking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Damn. So born and raised in the suburbs of New Jersey and bookish as a kid like was this something that you've always like a track that you've always been on or was it something mm, you came to later i really hated reading uh, in high school I, I liked i liked books i think but i think i was really turned off around middle school or high school when they start to you know have a curriculum and um kind of got turned on to writing senior year of college and then started reading i think after i graduated from college where did like, you go read, to school i went to haverford college it's a small liberal arts school but yeah, like reading as a as a art form is like I love this came after college. Okay, that's kind of I think that's more common 
than that almost, I feel like. A lot of writers, yeah. I feel like you don't really get serious about it until college or until you're sort of faced with the world. Mm-hmm. And that's I, I can relate to that feeling of, okay, now I need some books. Can somebody give me the instructions? <laughs> like, you know, there's sort of that impulse. But were there books or writers at that stage of your life that sort of lit you up and made you like see possibilities? After college? Or just at that point where it started yeah. to become interesting to you. The book that I still remember opening my eyes a lot was probably The Bell Jar. Interesting. Yeah. Why? Usually, I mean, I, I say that because if I'm being totally honest, usually it's a oh, female writer who latches onto that book. It's not often that you hear a guy be super into well, The Bell Jar. Well, I'm glad to be progressive in that regard. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm being a little facetious. I, I thought that the voice felt so both real and like it was expanding my world as I read it. I, uh, I, I don't, I don't know how to put it into words. I just, when I read it, I thought this is so powerful and real and it feels so visceral to me. And I just want to hold on to this feeling and recreate it as, as many times as I can. Wow. And the first per- it's first person, if I'm remembering. Yeah. I, uh, I'm actually not sure. It's the summer of the Rosenbergs. I'm trying to remember that first line. But anyway, is the voice and the first person narration that you're up to in The Vegan something that you feel a real affinity for? I did, yeah. I, I, was a, I thought I would suit me forever. And then my third book is written in third. And I, I love it. I think because I saw writing so much as performing and acting, I thought first person really suited me. But I switched to third, and I, I think I, I think I like it more. Interesting, yeah. And it's funny, you know, a couple things. Like, first of all, the way that we land on point of view—that's sort of a mysterious process. Like, it's project to project. And certain stories, I think, it's, it feels like stories can only really be told one way if they're going to be told well. And so, the point of view tends to be dictated by whatever the story needs. Like, I sort of believe in it that way. Do you have a sense of how you landed on first person for the vegan and third person for this upcoming novel? You know, I tried, I think I rewrote my first chapter of the vegan in third because I thought it would open certain doors for me. And it just was obvious it wasn't meant to be. For, for the, my third book, there's like a few uh, narrators and not to be too simplistic but what i love about third is that you have a greater way of capturing characters ambitions and flaws and desires and and i do mean like capturing in a way that could be negative too like communicating it to the reader and then being sort of done with it telling the reader information about a character's past instead of having them get that information through unstated means and i thought it just suited my third my third novel much more well and so just so i mean just for clarity's sake like this third this new novel in the third person you said there's multiple narrators so is it multiple like how are you you're getting inside the minds of multiple people or there's actual multiple third person narrators (laughs) yeah chapters alternate between a couple's point of view oh okay and there's probably what i would say four main characters all right yeah so You've had some good success and you're at a great house and you're working with a great editor. I mean, everything's sort of falling into place. And I'm wondering if it's sort of lived up to your imagination of how it would be. 
you know, for somebody who's like been in the trenches for as long as you have and went through the process of writing five failed novels, you know, you've definitely paid your dues and I'm sure you've spent lots of time, you know, imagining what it would be like to get to this point. I'm always interested in the reality versus the fantasy. Like, yeah. how has it been for you to see your, yourself in print and to put books out into the world versus how you dreamed it would be? Well, before, before I answer that question, I have to say that I, I've been listening to your podcast for over a decade. I have a very vivid memory of lying in my bed. And I lived in Florida for a couple of years and listening to an interview you had with like, an, I think it was an agent and just like uh, eating it up because I was so, I, I just wanted to know about the industry so badly. And I remember just listening to like so many episodes and like jumping around looking for just whenever they're talking about industry stuff, whenever they say agent or editor or anything like that. But to answer your question, you know, how, how many people answer this question of does it live up to what you expected with yes? I don't know. For me, it's, uh, I, I, and I, you know, I, I tend to focus on what could have gone better. And I have a very sometimes fear-based approach to things that I shouldn't. But yeah, I think I focused a lot on, on wanting wanting things and i think i still do i think with my second novel it feels much more like a process and an industry i have a better idea of what i should do and when and it feels a lot like work sometimes but selling my first novel was what you know one of the greatest days of my life i remember telling my wife and she because she knew how badly i'd want it so long and she fell to the ground crying and I just remember being in dreamland. It was early pandemic. We like had got an Airbnb in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, I mean, it, I did accomplish my life, my life's dream. And so there was all of that. And I probably felt euphoric for months. So that part of it, that part of it surpassed my dream. As far as the publishing process itself, I, I don't know if, if anyone goes through it and thinks, well, I, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I just spoiled it for myself by being too worried about things. <laughs> what do you mean? I focus on anything that went wrong more than what went right. You know, like to give you an example, <laughs> the, I got a, great review in the times before I sold a book, how much would I have wanted that, you know, to be re reviewed by a times staff critic who, who I think she compared me to Kingsley Amos or something, you know, that that's just a dream. I probably read that review two times and forgot about it. And it doesn't give me any joy to look it up now. And the art for that piece, they, they added, a minuscule white border around the book on two sides and so many people when they want an image of a book cover they go to the times so that image has been reproduced in a bunch of places and whenever i see that image it bothers me i think that i, th <laughs> I think i think i can't think of a better example than this fucking bullshit you know right like right. i got i got reviewed in the i got a great review in the times but the art something happened with the art and that is what i think about when I see that review, actually right behind me, my wife printed it out. I think it's right there and hung it. And the art is just this like this like small error on it. And that's just what I see when I see it. 
Well, I feel like, yeah, that, I think that's a very common experience for like when you reach the, I call them false summits. You know, you get to this thing that you think is going to be the pinnacle and it's actually not. And then on top of it, just as a function of human nature, like, and, and to mix metaphors, the goalposts move. You know, this was previously the thing that, man, if I got a review in the New York Times by a staff critic and it was positive and I was compared to Kingsley Amos, like everything after that is just gravy in life, right? Like mm-hmm. you'd, done, you'd, you'd feel like you'd run through the tape and it was over, but then that happens to you. You actually achieve that. And then it's like, no, I'm just going to fixate on the border around the book cover <laughs> in the artwork. And I'm going to, you know, create some new mountain that I have to climb in order to mm-hmm. feel like I've done something of, of merit or I've, re, you know, achieved what I want to achieve. Like it's never, it's never enough. It never ends, I think is the point. Yeah, it's truly, when you put it like that, it sounds timeless and mental in the way that humans often are. Yeah. I think it just goes back to the sort of all of this stuff, like the, the kind of publication book tour publicity stuff. It's not without its charms, but ultimately Mm -hmm. the real, the real like energy has to be focused on doing the work. Yeah. And I think that's part of it is that the publication often comes, feels so divorced from the writing often comes in my case, a year and a half or two years after you've sold it. And you have interesting conversations like this one, which makes me re-examine the book and think deeply about it. But there's a lot of other stuff that's not like this. That's just like, I don't even know what the right word is. That has nothing to do with what you wrote. It has nothing to do with what you brought to the book, like approving an audiobook narrator. So, I mean, that, that, that's a bad example because they bring different things to the book, of course. But so much of it is about emails, you know? <laughs> which has nothing right. to do with, with, with the process of writing. So from first book to second book, do you, like you talk about this part of the process and sort of wanting to help your book along. I mean, every writer has this feeling, I think, when a book is published, especially early on when you might not have as much institutional support. Maybe you never have institutional support. You know, there are a lot of writers who fall into that cat- uh, category, uh, very good writers. But, you know, when so much of it feels like it's on your shoulders to see a book into the world and to give it its best fighting chance to find readers like how methodical are you you strike me as somebody who like has his ducks in a row like do you have um, processes that you like lists and like excel spreadsheets and things that you're doing to try to help your book reach its readers you know reach its readers and did you learn things from book one to book two that you're carrying over yeah i i don't mess with excel but i have I'm relentless in list making and reaching out to people like uh, blurbs is a good example as far as what I learned in general I think if you send an email to someone and you're asking them for something or you're asking them of something at the end of the day checking in a bunch and maybe making yourself seem relentless who cares I don't know. You're, you're not afraid to be relentless. No. That's, I mean, that's how I got the interviews for the research of the book itself. I found a, a large... I, I thought of all these people I wanted to talk to and just relentlessly went after them until they went on the phone with me. I think some of them were hesitant. Some just said no out the gate. Some of them we don't have, we just said we don't have time to read novels. You know, we're making too much money. I got a billionaire to talk to me basically by just saying 
uh, I'm gonna ch- I'll ch- I'm just checking in until you tell me to stop. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, that's a good lesson. That's a good lesson. I mean, you can be polite and relentless at the same time. Yeah, I think writers often are not. They they think almost they excuse themselves from having to do that type of stuff because they say, "I'm an artist." But as you say, sometimes you never get institutional support, and there's so much luck. But you sometimes you have to create your own luck, and I don't mean to sound like a like self help guru there because I feel like that's something you'd expect Tony Robbins to say or something, but you have to be a business person in some way. Yeah. Once you're done creating the work. Yeah. And I, but I feel like, I feel like you maybe have more aptitude for that than the average writer, just because of the work that you do professionally. Uh, It might be. And the last thing I want to ask you about, and it's something that actually occurred to me earlier, and I'm glad that I remembered it is this thing that you've said a couple of times about how you conceive of writing fiction as acting. Is that what you said? It's acting or, there's a kind of, especially when it comes to a first-person narrator, there's a kind of theatrical aspect to what you're doing on the page and how you're approaching the work. And it calls to mind a conversation I had with one of your blurbers, Julia Mae Jonas, who has a theatrical background professionally mm-hmm. and has written plays and wrote a very brilliant kind of, I, uh, I, I hope I'm remembering this correctly. I'm almost positive it was a first-person voicey narrator in her debut novel Vladimir which is just excellent and it's just interesting to me because she has there's a very classic feel to that novel in a much the same way that there's a classic feel to your work and I remember talking to her about like you know these like like Philip Roth Saul Bellow these kind of old novels of the 70s that feel sort of soaked in gin and cigarette smoke or something (laughs) you know that's just the vibe and I feel some of that and and I mean that as a high compliment but she approached the work theatrically, uh, if I'm remembering this, like the narrator was sort of like a one-woman show almost, you know? Where does that come from for you? Do you have any theatrical background or like performative impulses? I think I would have loved it, and I wish I had gotten more involved with that. I love movies, who doesn't? But I think what, what so attracts me to the idea of acting as writing, when you watch great acting, they communicate things that don't exist that aren't never consciously stated and I love pretending I'm acting when I'm writing especially in a first person because I feel like stuff that I don't even intentionally want think to communicate to the reader will be communicated you see things in a room you describe things differently small gestures I love I love just describing small motions and where people are in a room and who's facing who and where what do they hear in the distance because that type of stuff never has a specific purpose when you're writing it. You're never saying someone who feels very guilty might be hearing a police siren in the distance or something like that. But they hear other things that make sense to the reader and communicates weird things to the reader and grinds them in reality that you only know because you pretended in your mind to be them and, and saw things that they would see through their eyes. I think that's the power of acting, and I try as much as I can to take that and, and Julia, of course, has so much more experience with what I'm talking about. And uh, it's definitely evidenced by what she does in Vladimir, which is a terrific novel. Well, you know, you say all of that. And I think of certain moments in the book. And I'm going to, I got him. There was one particular moment, but there were many actually. And I'm forgetting what it was. But the point that I want to make is that there is often in the vegan 
this wonderful sense of discovery that I could feel in you is that I could feel you getting excited as a writer, discovering things as you're sort of channeling Herschel's character and mm -hmm. voice on the page. But uh, it must have been fun for you. And maybe that's the fun of writing, period, is to have these moments of surprise. If you're, if you're, if you're not having those, you might be doing it wrong. <laughs> I'm so glad you said fun, too, because I feel like it's kind of a light word that we're not supposed to associate with creativity. But I always try to make it so I'm having fun. That's the only way I'll... I think make the most of myself if I if I look forward to doing something and feel like I'm having fun that's a great sign all right man well I'm very impressed with the vegan and with the uh the thing that you have going you know early on here in your career and I'm also impressed with how industrious you've been um and persistent you know getting through the early unsuccessful novels to publishing like a flurry of novels uh, you're working hard and you're doing good work so i commend you and i wish you well thank you so much brad thanks for having me okay folks there we have it that was my conversation with andrew lipstein his new novel is called the vegan it is available now from farrar strauss and Giroux. you can find andrew on the internet his website is alipstein.com he is also on social media track him down on twitter and on Instagram. One more time, the book is called The Vegan, available now. Go get your copy. Read this one. It's really uh, quite something. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you would like to become another People Patreon supporter, if you love this show and you want to see it continue, you can support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to get other people merchandise, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, a onesie for your newborn child, you can do so at otherppl.com. There are different colors, sizes, women's cuts, men's cuts, you name it. So get a t-shirt over at otherppl.com. If you would like to sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter, you can do that at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. If you have a moment, I would appreciate it if you would rate this podcast wherever you listen. Give it a little review. If that's an option, it helps new listeners find the show. The Other People podcast is on YouTube. You can watch it if you want. And if you would like to email me, if you have feedback, the address for the program is letters at otherppl.com. Finally, I have a novel out. My latest novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. Got to give it a plug. I narrate the audiobook, so I will read it to you if you would like. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So, coming up on Wednesday, I am going to be in conversation with Jenny Shia, author of a new novel called holding pattern. I had a great time talking with Jenny. So stay tuned.